Revelation 1.10. John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. In the middle of this chapter, John drops this sentence like it's taken for granted, like it's common experience. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He doesn't say it like there's like it was this extraordinary thing or this thing that never happened. It was just, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and I saw something that was very unique and here's a book about it. But he just says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. John 4, Jesus is speaking and he says this, The hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus says if we're going to worship God successfully and the way God wants, we have to be in the spirit. In Mark 16, he describes... The supernatural lifestyle of somebody who believes. Mark 16, 15 to 18. Jesus said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Jesus said that is the average Christian life. That is the sign that somebody believes, that we walk in supernatural power, that we live in the Spirit. And when the church was born, it was born in the Spirit. Acts 2, 2 through 4. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. The church was born in the Spirit. We are not a religion. We are the people of God. And we must be in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Come on. We must be in the spirit later on in acts 2 peter's preaching and he quotes from joel 2 acts 2 17 he says this in those last days god says i will pour out my spirit on all people your sons and daughters will prophesy your young men will see visions your old men will dream dreams in those days i will pour out my spirit even on my servants men and women alike and they will prophesy and i will cause wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below and everyone who calls on the name of the lord will be saved when the holy spirit is poured out on his people we will see miracles we will see healings we will see dream dreams and see visions and prophesy we absolutely must have the holy spirit we must live in the spirit we must hear the voice of the Lord and walk in supernatural power because there's no power in just being religious. I said there is no power in just being religious. Being full of the Spirit was taken for granted in the early church. In the Apostles' Church of the book of Acts, it was a non-negotiable qualification to be a Christian was that you had been baptized in the Holy Spirit. 
even to be chosen as a table waiter. You had to have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Acts 6, 1 to 7. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Greeks, saying that their widows were neglected in the daily distribution of food. So the apostles summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So the apostles are receiving a complaint from the Greek widows that they're being ignored, that the, the church's charity work of taking care of, in those days, widows who could not work and they didn't have a welfare system to take care of people, uh, the church did. And there was some racism in the early church, the Jews against the Greeks and or the non-Jews. And there was a complaint, and the apostles saw that it was a problem, but they said, it's not, it's not our, that's not our responsibility. We need to commit to the word and to prayer. We need to find seven men who can take care of this work of taking care of our widows. And they list two qualifications. They've got to have a good reputation, meaning the people respect them and will follow them and help them and listen to them. And you've got to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. We, this church, New Song, Community Church, we are a Holy Spirit assembly. We are a Spirit-led people. We are a Spirit-baptized congregation. Those of you who've been around for a long time, you've, you know that. Those of you who've come more recently, uh, just let you know, we are. If somebody wanted to apply a label, we are a charismatic church, a non-denominational charismatic community church. People like those labels and words. Some people might use the word Pentecostal, but there is a difference there. But we have have people in this church who've come from a word of faith background, people who've come from Assembly of God and other Pentecostal church backgrounds, people who've come out of uh, being influenced by Vineyard and and lots of other influences in their their past, Faith Center, uh, Foursquare gospel uh, churches and we are a charismatic church and in the charismatic and pentecostal churches there is an emphasis in the teaching and the practice of what's called the gifts of the spirit and so you'll hear things and see things about tongues and healings and miracles and prophecies there's a stereotype about a pentecostal church what that looks like and how the people behave um, in a charismatic meeting or in spirit-led worship, there's a, there's a type of altar call that both the supporters and the critics expect, right? Because the people in the church are aiming for something at the end of servant. And the critics are watching for that to happen. So both the participants and the critics are watching for the same thing. There's, there's a stereotype, a type of of altar call or, or a peak to the service. There's a, there's a stereotype about a healing meeting or a baptism of fire or laughter or rolling on the floor and these things that, that people are either wanting to happen or are scared are going to happen or don't want to happen. And all of those things that I just said have happened in this room from time to time over the years. But I want to expand your definition, your vision of what it means to be full of the Holy Spirit this morning. 
because the list of the gifts of the Spirit and the emphasis in the past of what has been the charismatic and Pentecostal churches, uh, sometimes people get pretty limited vision in what that means. So I want to go back and I want to look at these seven guys that the apostles are looking for in Acts 6. And I want, you to, I want to point out something that the apostles were looking for. We've got the 12 apostles leading the church that by this time is probably over 10,000 people. It's the first mega church uh, in Jerusalem. And they've got 12 guys are leading a 10,000 member church. And there's this problem and they said, okay, we're, our plate is full. We are exclusively given over to the preparation, the study, and the preaching of the word and prayer. This is a legitimate need that needs done. We want to take care of our widows. We want to provide for people who cannot provide for themselves and we need some people to do it they go to the congregation they said pick seven people seven men from amongst your number and they give two qualifications that we are looking for we want them to have a good reputation moral integrity trust of the people people like them know them trust them respect them will follow them right and number two they must be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. The apostles did not say to the church, we are looking for people who are, quote-unquote, filled with the Spirit. Neither are we looking for people who are wise but don't have the Holy Spirit. We want people who have the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Hello. Hello. If we're going to lay hands on and anoint these seven and make them church leaders and put them in authority over people, they have to have the fullness of the Holy Spirit. But they have to have wisdom also. We're not looking for the people who can display the wildest stuff. Neither are we looking for the smartest people, but it's just a cerebralness. We need the Holy Spirit and wisdom. I want to draw that phrase out of there, the Holy Spirit and wisdom. What did these seven, Stephen and Philip, are mentioned other places in Acts? The other five, we don't know much about them at all. The second half of this verse says, This decision pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. And then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. They laid hands on these guys, they anointed them with oil, they put them in charge of waiting tables, taking care of distributing the food, which was the charity work of the church of that day. The apostles say, we are looking for guys who are full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And what did they do with their Holy Spirit fullness? Were they attending wild meetings? No. They were taking care of people every day. They were helping to lead the church. They were applying their Holy Spirit wisdom to solve a real world daily life problem. They were taking care of people with their Holy Spiritness. This phrase, the Holy Spirit and wisdom, where did the apostles pull that from? Well, ha. Huh, Guess what? It's all through Scripture, particularly the Scriptures that they had, which was the Old Testament. 
come to find out the Holy Spirit and wisdom hang out together. If it's foolishness, it ain't the Holy Spirit. And if it's true wisdom, it must be spiritual or it isn't wise. So let's look at where this phrase, the Holy Spirit and wisdom, where this coupling, this pairing of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, why did the apostles demand that it be both? Because they'd read the scriptures and it's in there a lot. From Genesis 41, this is the story of Joseph where Pharaoh has had a dream that terrifies him and and Joseph is called up from the dungeon and he tells Pharaoh what the dream means and then he interprets the dream and gives Pharaoh some well, very wise advice on what to, how to apply the warning that God has just given him. And this is Genesis 41, 37. So the advice was good in Pharaoh's eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Inasmuch as God has shown you all this, there is no one as discerning and wise as you. There it is. In whom is the Spirit of God, there is no one wiser. See it? Holy Spirit and wisdom. You shall be over my house and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Joseph goes from being a prisoner in a dungeon to vice Pharaoh in one day. Why? Because he has the Spirit of God in him. He is a spiritual man. He had dreams himself. He interpreted at least three people's other three other people's dreams. He spoke the language of the Spirit. He lived in the Spirit. As John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Joseph lived there. But he could translate that into the earthly lives of people who didn't know God, and they saw it as profound, jaw-dropping wisdom. He's a spiritual man. He speaks the language of the Spirit, but he gives practical governance and economic advice that astounds the greatest leaders in the world of the time. Because he speaks heaven's language, he can translate it into earth's language. And he can tell the people of the world what God is saying. Being a man of the Spirit did not make him a weirdo. It made him more practical and wise than he otherwise would have been. The Holy Spirit and wisdom. In Exodus 35, this is Moses and the children of Israel in the wilderness, and they need to build a tabernacle, the tent of meeting, where God would put the Ark of the Covenant and where they would come to worship. It was their first church, for lack of a modern-day parallel to what a tabernacle is. It's a tent. And they need somebody to make the furnishings and the artwork and the tent itself. And God tells Moses this. Exodus 35, 30 to 35. God said to the children of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding. Ha, there it is again. If you have the Holy Spirit, you will be full of wisdom and understanding. In knowledge and all manner of workmanship, to design artistic works, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting jewels for setting, in carving wood, and to work in all manner of artistic workmanship. He has put in his heart the ability to teach. In him and Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan, he has filled them with skill 
to do all manner of work of the engraver and the designer and the tapestry maker in blue and purple and scarlet thread and fine linen and those of the weaver, those who do every work and those who design artistic works. Back in Exodus 31, God says this, I put wisdom in the hearts of all the gifted artists that they may make all that I have commanded you. God's speaking to Moses there. God says, I put wisdom and artistic talent in people by my spirit. Speaking of David, next verse is 1 Samuel 16. The verse is speaking of David. It says, a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite is skillful in playing music, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, a prudent in speech, handsome person, and the Lord is with him. There it is again. The Lord is with him, and what does he do? He's skillful at playing music. So if we limit our definition and our expectation of a move of the Spirit to look like a wild altar call or something exactly from the nine gifts of the Spirit, we're missing all this other stuff. In Joseph, it shows up as wisdom. In these artists, it shows up as artistic talent. That God says, is my Spirit. I put my wisdom and understanding and artistic talent for beauty in them and the things they make are by my spirit. And he uses the word skill and wisdom and understanding when the spirit of the Lord comes upon an artist who is good. We'll qualify it with that. In Numbers 27, we have the story of Joshua. And the Lord says to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, with you, a man in whom is the spirit a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him and set him before Eliezer the priest and before all the congregation, and to inaugurate him in their sight, and you shall give your authority to him, and that all the congregation of the children of Israel may be obedient. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, he and all the children of Israel with him. God tells Moses, my Spirit is in Joshua. And what does that look like? It looks like authority and government, leadership. Joshua was a spiritual man, folks. When he walked up, the stone walls of Jericho fell down. His prayer stopped the sun. He's got some juice on his prayers. He had a visitation of an angel that's named the commander of the army of the Lord, and some of the scholars think it was actually Jesus appeared to him 1,200 years before Jesus actually comes in the flesh. He's a spiritual man. But he is so earthly, practically wise that the book of Joshua, until about 50 years ago, was studied in West Point as a model of genius of military conquest. Because Joshua was so practically and applicably wise. He was a good leader that people loved and trusted. He was a spiritual man. But he wasn't laying on the floor in a trance all day. He was leading people. He was serving. He was obeying the Lord, and it translated into change the world. Practical leadership, earthly wisdom. He was not a freak or a flake or a weirdo. He was one of the best leaders in world history. Because the Spirit and wisdom lived together. In 1 Chronicles 12 is the coronation of David. And it lists who from each of the 12 tribes came to the coronation of David. And it lists all the 12 tribes. And one of the tribes is Issachar. 
And it says, the sons of Issachar, 1 Chronicles 12, 32, the sons of Issachar had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. I want that to be the description of our church. That we understand, and we as a people, as a congregation, we understand the times and we know what to do. How will we know what to do? Not by thinking, but by listening, by being spiritual. But we don't have spiritual experiences for their own sake alone. We have spiritual experiences so we can bring heaven to earth. The point of our meetings is not to have a meeting. Whether it's boring or exciting, either one. The point is to touch heaven so we can touch earth. So that we can understand what God says is happening and we can take that to the world. I'm so desperate for the church to have real answers to the problems of the world, both individual people to employers and economics and and government and world situations. The church should be where wisdom comes from, not flakiness. In Daniel 5, we have the story of Daniel. Guess what he's described as? Full of the Spirit and wisdom. Daniel 5, this is the story of Belshazzar. He's getting drunk, and he sees the hand of God appear and writes on the wall, and none of his astrologers and soothsayers can translate what God has written on the wall there, and he is very, very scared. And his mother, the queen, comes in and says, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you or let your face fall. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, and soothsayers. Inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, now let Daniel be called and he will give the interpretation. So, Daniel's called in later on in the chapter, verse 14, the king says to Daniel, I have heard of you, that the Spirit of God is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. There it is again. In Daniel 6, it says this, God says this of Daniel, Then this Daniel distinguished himself above all the governors and officials because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. If you know anything about Daniel, you know he was a spiritual man. He was in the spirit all the time. He had dreams and visions and angel visitations like nobody else in the Old Testament. I'm not, I don't think Daniel ever did a miracle like Elijah or Elisha or Moses or Samuel. But Daniel, the book of Daniel is as spiritual as the books in the Old Testament get. As far as contact with the spirit world, he is a spiritual man. But he was so smart. He was so sensible. He was so wise that five, at least five and perhaps six kings had him as his, their chief of all their wise men. Because Daniel could tell them the truth. He could interpret what God was giving them in dreams or signs. And do you, If you don't know history, you don't know how unheard of that is. When one king conquered another, he would put that king to death and he would kill all of his advisors and wise men because we can't have divided loyalties. We can't have a guy who worked for the previous king now giving me advice because he'll steal me wrong. 
Daniel survived six kings from three different empires. That is a miracle. He was that attractive of a person. He was that wise. He was that jaw-droppingly good at speaking the language of heaven in a way earthly men could understand. Do you hear me? He was full of the Spirit and wisdom. He was excellently supernatural. Hello? It says he was excellent at everything he did. He was excellently supernatural. Folks, there is no power in just being good. But there is no power in weirdness and emotional displays either. Real spiritual power will affect things in the earth. It will change people's lives. It will speak the gospel to somebody who doesn't know it. I want, I, I'm talking about myself, Mitch Coaston, I desperately want to be a mystic. I want to live in the spirit. I want to know the voice of God. I want to hear the voice of God. I want to know the Lord. I want dreams and visions and miracles. When I pray, I get really disappointed if something doesn't happen. (laughs) I want to carry the authority of the name of Jesus and the power of the blood of Jesus. And I want to be a spiritual man. I don't want to approach Christianity only with my mind. I don't want to be just a moral person. I want to know the Spirit of God. I want to walk with angels. And I don't want to imagine that I do. I want to know that I do. But I also want to be sensible. Because if I'm not, it doesn't make any good out of my life. Just as Jesus was the God-man, he came from heaven speaking God's language, but he spoke it in earth language. And when he teaches about heaven, what does he use? Fish and wind and trees and flowers and crops. Of course, Jesus was the most spiritual man ever. But he was completely accessible. And he was understandable. He was approachable. He was simple to understand. He was not scary. Little kids wanted to sit on his lap. Come on. He didn't go about in ecstatic stuff and claim that was the possession of the Holy Spirit. He was a simple, plain man who brought kids to sit on his lap and he prayed for them and blessed them. When he multiplied food, there was no wild prayer and dance and craziness. It was here, take this basket and start passing stuff out. It happened so unassumingly. It was naturally supernatural. I said it was naturally supernatural. He walks on water, but he's just going for a walk. He needs to get to where his disciples are, and so he walks out across the lake. No crazy, wild, emotional show about it. He just shows up. He was naturally supernatural. The apostles, he taught them how to be spiritual, and they were so spiritually deep The things they wrote about, I'm talking about Paul and Peter and John's letters to us, James and Jude and so on. Their letters to us, they're so spiritually deep that 2,000 years later we are still debating what they meant because we don't fully understand it. But it is so simple, it applies to a six-year-old because their teaching is 
Honor your mother and father. Don't lie. Don't hang out with divisive people. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, honor your husbands. It's really easy stuff. Simple, practical, wise, natural stuff that comes out of deep spiritual revelations of experiences that I don't even think we fully get in Scripture. Because John just says, I was in the Lord, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. There's there's some there's some power there, folks. There's some experience there that I don't think we really even get. And he just sort of took it for granted like it was what we it's what we do. It's what we do. It's what it means to be a Christian. You're in the Holy Spirit. But it's applied in very practical ways because Paul took heavenly revelations. Paul was super highly educated, but he talks about revelations and mysteries in the spirit that are just so deep, even Peter says the rest of us apostles don't understand it. It was, it was so powerful and deep and the hidden things of God that he's writing about the mystery of Christ. But he takes these spiritual experiences and he writes them according to the rules of Greek logic. And it's so simple and plain that his letters have spoken to every culture in the world for 2,000 years and it makes perfect sense to everybody who becomes a believer. Because he translates a spiritual experience, a spiritual existence into earthly language. That makes sense. He was naturally supernatural. 1 Corinthians 14. Paul writes this to the charismatic church. Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God. For no one understands him. However, in the spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks strength and encouragement and comfort to people. He who speaks in a tongue strengthens himself. But he who prophesies strengthens the church. I wish all of you spoke with tongues. But even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues. Unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. Later on in the chapter, verse 23 to 25, Paul says this, If the whole church comes together in one place and all of you are speaking with tongues and there comes into your midst those who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all and he is convicted by all because the secrets of his heart are revealed. And so, falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly in this place. They wanted to be super spiritual. So they were all competing in ways that were quite disgusting. If you read the whole book of 1 Corinthians, you, you, you know what they were involved in. They, were, they all wanted to speak in tongues, and it was all at the same time, and there was competition, and there was, it was just babble. It was just charismatic chaos, nonsense. And Paul says, I wish you all spoke in tongues. I say that too. I wish you all spoke in tongues, but I know some of you are scared of it. It's real. It is the Holy Spirit. It is powerful. But Paul says it is for you. He says, when you speak in tongues, you encourage yourself. But you prophesy, in our case, in English, you speak to the church as God. You speak for God. Everybody is encouraged. And that is beneficial. 
He says, if everybody's speaking in tongues in your meeting and somebody who doesn't believe or doesn't understand what's going on comes in and like, this, these people are mad. I'm going home. It's real. It's Holy Spirit. But Paul says, in the church, that's not what we're here to do. We are here to teach people. We are here to present the gospel. We are here to prophesy and lay their hearts bare. So they will fall on their face and say, God is really here. Because these people don't know what they just said. Paul says, using this example, he says, tongues is confusion, but prophecy is bears hearts. And he says that encouragement or teaching, communication is the key. So he uses tongues, I'll say, more than that. Nobody is a prophet or a dreamer or has a vision or anything else unless you can communicate it to everyday people. C.S. Lewis says, I have come to the conviction that if you cannot translate your thoughts into everyday language, your thoughts are confused. Power to translate is the test of having really understood. A truly spiritual person will also possess wisdom and be able to speak that to other people to bless and encourage them also. Albert Einstein says you do not really understand something unless you can explain it to your grandmother. So like Paul, we, we should be having powerful, dramatic spiritual experiences, but not for the sake of having experiences. It is to translate them to bless and encourage and teach someone else and help them to communicate. You know, those of you who are musicians and athletes, you know that the best musicians and the best athletes can play very fancy, elaborate stuff. Whether it's on guitar or piano or dribbling a basketball, they can go wild. But what makes them the best is they're the most consistent with the fundamentals. Come on. It does not matter how fancy of a drummer you are if you can't keep beat. Ringo Starr is paid more than any drummer in world history, and he plays don't, 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 on all the Beatles songs. <laughs> and we got drummers just going berserk today and all this fancy stuff, and Ringo Starr is just don't, 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 don't. It's the fundamentals. You know, I'm sure that we know Stephen Curry can dunk. We know that he can dribble like crazy, but when he posts up to take a shot, the rest of his team leaves the area because the, the ball is going to sink. Paul hasn't even left his hand and his teammate is on his way out of the key. <laughs> because his fundamentals are 100%. So is a man or woman of the Spirit. You may have and do and see some crazy wildest stuff, but it's the fundamentals that matters. How good are you at loving people? How good are you at actually obeying God? You can prophesy the pain off the wall, but if you got secret sin, you're bound for hell. The fundamentals is what matters. That's what makes people excellent. And we know that in anything in life, we have to rehearse. We have to practice for hours with athletics or music or some hobby skill or whatever. We've got to work. We have to build. We have to invest money and time, sweat. We've got to push to do absolutely anything in life. But then charismatics thinks that the things of the Spirit have to be impromptu and spontaneous. Or it isn't the Holy Spirit. All that is is sloppy and really not beneficial because it wasn't thought through and it isn't applicable. There are Pentecostal and charismatic preachers that don't plan their sermons. Well, that wouldn't be spiritual. Well, I say that isn't wise 
it's not the Holy Spirit, that's foolishness. Anything we do that doesn't involve work and practice and thought and excellence doesn't work. But then somehow the Holy Spirit people of God think that that is exactly what we're supposed to do. And really it's just sloppy. Because Daniel was excellent in all he did. Being spirit-led is not necessarily being impromptu or unrehearsed. So we are to be filled with the spirit and wisdom. I gave you an article by Dutch Sheets a couple months ago that he said, God gives us all truth in seed form. And we take that seed and we put it in and we begin to apply it and it grows until it bears fruit. Well, it's the same thing with the prophetic word. If you get an idea during worship, it's not necessarily for right now. Let it grow. I have sermon ideas from years ago that are still growing. I haven't given the word. I have others that I get in the middle of the week and give them on Sunday. But there's still got to be preparation and study and thought and how can I illustrate this? How can I communicate it clearly? Frank DiMaggio calls it the God thought. When I get up here on a Sunday morning and I tell you God gave me this word this week or God gave me this message, I don't mean that I went, and I put my pen to the paper and I began writing at the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's occultists do that with demons they do automatic writing that is not how the bible was written it's not how any sermon is written and i would be a fool to stand up here and say that my sermons are on the inspiration level of scripture that god gave this to me no god gave me a thought he gave me an idea he gave me a scripture he connected a couple of scriptures he gave me a phrase in a dream or in a on the radio or on somebody's t-shirt somebody's t-shirt one time gave me a sermon But I take those ideas, I know the voice of the Spirit, I know how He speaks to me, and I know what it feels like when He speaks, and it's not my mind. But then I engage my mind, and I think. And I have training in writing and speaking, and I I look up verses, and I read, and I have to decide, is this even right? Don't believe everything you think. Not every idea that comes to your head is the Holy Spirit. Seriously, I have really thought things like, oh, this is God, and I'll talk through Sarah, and she's like, well, what about X, Y, and Z? Oh, yeah, okay, well, slow down, Mitch. Seriously, she's tweaked my sermons without even knowing it. It's a thought. It's an inspiration, but 1 Corinthians 14, 32 and 33 says, the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. The spirit of... Those of us who have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is subject to us. The prophet, the preacher, the writer, the artist, whatever. You cannot just get up and say, God told me to do this. Well, maybe he gave you an idea. But then it's got to come out through you. And sometimes that's right, and a lot of times it's not. We need each other. He said we need each other to determine what is actually the Holy Spirit. All prophecy is to be judged. Let me give you an example of this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the Gospels. 1 Timothy 3.16 says that every word of this book is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Nothing else lives up to this. 
This is every word, every punctuation mark in here. Jesus said jot and tittle, punctuation marks, is inspired by God. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four Gospels in here, the stories of Jesus' life. All four of them are 100% Holy Spirit inspired. But they're all different. It's very obvious that the Holy Spirit wrote the book of John through John. Because John's vocabulary and sentence structure is really weird. It is obvious that Matthew and Luke copied Mark. Any of the scholars who approach the Bible from a literary viewpoint, they can see that Mark was written first, Matthew and Luke read Mark, and then copied it. And that's Holy Spirit inspiration. They didn't just sit down and say, I'm just going to slop out a first draft and whatever happens is Holy Spirit. They thought, they read, they prayed. Luke, it's obvious he went and interviewed Mary because Mary is in a bunch of stories in Luke that she's not in the other Gospels because Luke went and talked to her. And at the, the first verse of Luke, he says, I have perfect understanding and I am setting out an orderly account. He had put it in order himself. Come on. It's 100% Holy Spirit led, but Luke puts it in order. Second Peter 2 and Jude are nearly word for word the same. One of them read the other and copied it. We don't know which one wrote first. Second Peter 2 and Jude. They're both 100% inspired. It was not spontaneous. There was reading and thought and communication and learning from each other. I said learning from each other. And it's the Holy Spirit. I wrote to you a couple months ago of a pastor who said that he always wrote the first half of his sermon and he gave the second half to the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit wrote the second half. Meaning he came only half prepared on Sunday morning. And he told that to his church, and some very honest young person came up to him, and he says, well, your half is always better than the Holy Spirit's half. Because why? Because it wasn't the Holy Spirit. It was slop. It was, I have a couple ideas, and I'm going to shout them out really loud, and then we're just going to have some holy rolling, and we're going to call it the Holy Spirit. And this guy says, I don't get anything out of that. That isn't how a songwriter who writes worship music writes worship music. There is an inspiration that comes. Musicians, you know, right? A music line or a chorus or a phrase that that turns itself into a song. But also, you better know what you're doing musically. There's keys and chords and verse and bridge and chorus structures and all this wisdom and understanding of art that comes to play that is the musician's part. That happens with preaching, it happens with prophecy, it happens with any ministry. Two years ago, Holly Simmons was one of our interns, and she was doing what Ashley just did this morning, except she had to do a whole Sunday morning sermon. And we rehearsed it, and I saw her outline, and, and we went through it together. It was great. And she got up here first service, and she did a bang-up job. It was awesome. It was fantastic. But there was one spot in the middle where she fell down. And she picked herself back up, and she got back on track, and she finished it out, and it was a very good word. It was a very encouraging and powerful time. In between services, we're in the kitchen having a cookie and talking it through, and she asked me if I had any input, and I said, well, what about that section right there? Uh, That did not come through very clear, and she said, 
honestly, I didn't know. I, I got to that part in my notes, and I, I didn't really know what to say, so I didn't do anything. I just figured the Holy Spirit would fill it in. And I said, and he didn't, did he? She said, no, he didn't. <laughs> Excellence equals the Holy Spirit. Preparation, learning, planning, communication is the Holy Spirit. Not, well, I'll leave it half undone, and the Holy Spirit will make up for the rest. In 1 Corinthians 14, again, verses 7 to 9, even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? If the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? So likewise you, unless you speak words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. Paul says if it's not easy for people to understand, it isn't the Holy Spirit. Continuing the passage, he says, I thank my God that I speak with tongues more than you all. Yet in the church, I would rather speak five words with my understanding to teach others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So there we have the ratio of Paul's meetings of charismatic displays to coherent teaching. 10,000 to five. The apostles, they had their Pentecost, but then they were dedicated to the apostles' teaching. Come on. There's a lot of real-world work to reform lives after God touches a person supernaturally. What is historically called revival is actually the seed planting, and there's a lot of work after that. In 1 Corinthians 3.9, Paul talks about that work. He says, we are God's fellow workers, meaning the apostles. We are God's fellow workers, and you are God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. Paul says the church is a building, and Paul says, I am the wise master builder. Being led by the Holy Spirit, I am the wise master builder. Well, a wise master builder, those of you who built things, you know you cannot be willy-nilly and call it being spirit-led. There are rules and building codes and procedures and an exact prescribed order in how to put the building together. And if you skip a section... You are not building anything that is going to stand. A wise master builder is not flaky. A wise master builder is not unstable. A wise master builder does not commit to one thing and then three months later say, well, God told me to quit and go do this other thing. And then a year later, well, God told me to go on to the next thing. That's not the Holy Spirit. It's foolishness. Because the Holy Spirit and wisdom hang out together. A wise master builder does not make a decision and then reverse them casually later. A wise master builder does not offer lazy excuses for his or her commitments. A wise master builder works hard and takes responsibility for the project and works until the project is finished. A wise master builder follows the building code established by the experts that have done this before. Come on. There's a reason for every requirement and step in the construction process. So the wise master builder not only learns from those who have done it before, he or she does it exactly the same way the people did it before. They don't ignore their examples and wisdom and say, well, I'm going to be led by the Spirit. The wise master builder does not get to make it up as he goes. The building will fall down quickly and his life work will be wasted. The Spirit will never lead you against church history or doctrine or unity. 
A wise master builder understands that the foundation, the fundamentals, are way more important than the paint color and the curtains and the crown molding. The concrete and the floor joists and the studs and the wiring and the plumbing are what makes the house. So he doesn't skip or scrimp on the structure to get to the fun and the pretty parts that are only decoration and comfort. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom. They were excellently and naturally supernatural. So I want us to be a Holy Spirit people. I want the manifestation of the Spirit of God to occur every time we come together in Jesus' name. I want spiritual events and experiences to be the norm amongst our people. I want miracles and wonders and dreams and prophecy and tongues and visions and healings and fire in the air. I want anticipation and excitement and encouragement and faith to be the atmosphere of our church meetings. But I am also looking for wisdom and strategy and long-term vision to evangelize and disciple individual people and our entire valley. And all of eastern Oregon. Actually, our assignment's bigger than that, but more on that later. I want to see more commitment and endurance and responsibility than I do right now. I desperately desire to see leadership and governance and practical wisdom come from the church into the problems of the world. I'm looking for creative people who will paint and write and play and sing and web design and video edit and sew and sculpt and build all at the creative leading of the Holy Spirit of God, making whatever sacrifices to practice and learn and perfect your work to serve God and to serve a people in Jesus' name and to present the gospel in creative ways. I want to see caring people who will take ownership of the problems of our towns and our schools and our state and our neighbors and our employers and the economy and troubled individuals and ownership that will pay a price, even suffer to bring the gospel, the wisdom of Christ, to a culture that is increasingly broken and difficult. So where are the Christians that want to do more than just attend church? Where are the revivalists who are looking for more than an exciting meeting? Where are the believers who will actually give away what they own and go to a foreign nation? Where are the Christians who will take responsibility for your addicted neighbors or your broke neighbors or your gay neighbors or your Muslim neighbors? Who will take the spirit and wade into the filth and hopelessness of your co-workers' lives and bring truth and freedom? Where are the Christians who will work to redeem their local government and their local schools? Where are the Holy Spirit mystics who can actually and accurately interpret the king's dreams and answer the government's questions? Where are the spirit-led believers that can answer the world's terrors instead of feeding their anger? Where are the sons of Elijah and John the Baptist who will boldly and accurately rebuke ungodly leaders and interest groups? Who are those who will teach the commandments of the Lord and the ways of the Spirit to the next generation of children and youth? All that's going to take a lot of work. It requires that we live in the Spirit, but that we bring it to earth in wisdom. I'm looking for the sons of Issachar who will understand the times and know what to do. I'm searching for Daniels and Josephs who are spiritual mystics and intellectual giants who can serve the world and the government of their day and answer the leaders of their day because they're filled with the Spirit of God. I'm looking for the Apostle Pauls, who are excellently educated, but who live in mystery and revelation and spiritual experience 
but then they explain and communicate those spiritual truths in such well-ordered written logic that it makes sense to the world and changes lives and gets people saved. So where are the excellent people? Where are the spirit-filled people? Are they in the dead and empty cerebral church meeting? No. Are they in the silly church meeting? No. They're the ones who have one hand firmly grasping heaven and the other firmly grasping earth. And even though it may feel like it's pulling you apart, you bring the two together in one in you. And we bring heaven to the people of the earth and we bring the people of the earth to heaven. New Song Community Church, in whom is the spirit and wisdom. In whom is the spirit and wisdom. In whom is the spirit and wisdom. Lord, we desperately need your Holy Spirit. We want to be in the spirit with you all day long, every day. Whenever we come to gather together in this meeting or Monday nights or Thursday nights or ladies groups or youth group, however we come together, Lord, we want it to be spiritual. We want it to be real. We want it to be powerful. We want the real power of your name and your blood, the authority of your kingdom in our midst, in our hearts, out our mouths, and out our hands, Lord. We want miracles and presence and power and healings. And we want your wisdom, Lord, to answer the situations that people find themselves in, individual people who are lost, who need Jesus, Lord, people with questions that don't understand what way is right. We want to answer the questions of our employers, of our economy, of our neighbors, of our students and coworkers and classmates, Lord. We want to have your wisdom on our tongues, in our minds, Lord. We want the world to see that we have been with Jesus and we are turning the world upside down. That we are not seeking experience for experience sake, Lord, but we are experiencing you so that we may then carry your spirit and your wisdom to a world that so desperately needs you. Lord, fill us with your spirit and wisdom. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.